I consider myself lucky. I arrived to Paris just two days after a massive heat wave hit the city. And I believe it was 41 degrees Celsius, late June, first few days of July. I arrived, it was 34. Still very hot, but better than 41. And I was staying on the fifth floor of a walk-up building, the top floor. So you can imagine the heat gathering and not really, uh, not much ventilation, little fan, just kind of keeping things fairly cool. But it was still tough. I mean, 34 in Paris, no AC, is it's still difficult. But anyway, it's better than 41. The second reason I consider myself lucky is I managed to meet Zied Dwedi while in Paris. Uh, Zied Dwedi is an Oscar-nominated filmmaker and a prominent voice in post-Civil War Lebanese film and narrative and storytelling. And he's very busy in Paris editing a French production, a French TV series that he's uh, currently working on. And he managed to give me an hour of his time. And I actually went to his editing studio, which was a thrill, because I don't know what these things look like. And it was quite fun to see how it's all done. I mean, lot, many hours of footage all edited down to one TV show. And Ziad Dwedi explained the software was rather basic. But I mean, I'm looking at it from an innocent, sort of naive perspective. It was still quite a thrill to see it happening in front of me. So we did the conversation there in his editing studio, and Ziad was willing to talk about everything. Uh, we went back to his early years in Hamra, growing up, his teenage years as the war's beginning, and roaming around the streets of Hamra and Ras Beirut and West Beirut, and perhaps the, the beginning of his storytelling craft, and the memories he would take with him once he left Lebanon during the Civil War to the West, to, the, to America, and he ended up living in San Diego and pursuing his film career there. And we also get into the beginning of that career. Uh, he's a grip, he's a camera assistant, he's in Hollywood, and he's rather detached from Lebanon at that time, pursuing his skills abroad. And he, uh, of course, after the Civil War ends, he comes back to Beirut a few years later and delivers, in my opinion, the best movie on Lebanon's civil war, West Beirut. And I think a lot, large number of this audience will agree that uh, this is a, a great, great story of teenage uh, innocence, of teenage lust, of teenage exploration in the middle of a civil war, a city breaking down. And of course, uh, I think uh, a lot of people that grow, grew up in Ras Beirut and Hamra often think back to that movie, and it's almost like an equating that storyline with their own. And there's a lot to take from that movie. So we, we do explore West Beirut, and we also get into his other movies. Uh, Lila says about uh, Marseille and South France, uh, we go into the political fallout of the attack and the reasons Ziad Dwedi went there to Israel to film a story about Palestinian nationhood in Tel Aviv. Of course, uh, this is a controversial issue that cost him quite a bit. The, we, we get deep into that discussion and the, the determination that he feels this is the right thing to do. You go to where the story is told, no matter what the, uh, the consequence, and it should be about art at the end of the day. It should not be about politics. 
regardless. Uh, that's something we delve deep in. And of course, we uh, talk about the, uh, the his most recent film, The, uh, the Insult, and its uh, submission to the Oscars and its Oscar nomination and, and all that. And Ziad Dwedi discusses his current feelings about Beirut and Lebanon and the region. And he opens up a larger issue and his, uh, his take on, uh, on, a, on a widening rift between the West and the Arab world through his eyes. And Ziad Dwedi is subjective. He talks about his own immediate views. He's not one for analysis or philosophy or, or theory. And he's, he speaks, in a sense, from the gut. And it's an emotional reaction at times, but it's also a very intimate and personal and honest portrayal of what he sees uh, the region going through and how he feels when he goes back to the region and his reasons for not going back now. Ziad Dwedi is living in Paris at the moment, and he'll be moving to uh, to the U.S. next year to pursue his next project. But in the background of all of this, his personal feelings, his storytelling craft, um, is a sense of fairness, and we touch on this. What he thinks is a larger purpose or a larger issue, which is uh, delivering fairness to voices that don't always get to speak, or at least they don't often feel like they're being given a fair deal. And uh, on an individual scale, on a community scale, and uh, in that sense, there's some reflection there. Things he felt were not fair when he was younger, things he saw in his own uh, youth growing up in Lebanon, and things he carries with him today, uh, a sense of fairness that's very important to him. So we get into all this. I hope you enjoyed the discussion with Zia Tuere. This is the Beirut Banyan. The cinemas of Hamra that were still open even during the worst of times, did you frequent those cinemas as, as a younger Beiruti resident? Very much so. The, uh, Hamra was a very happening place. It's not like it is today. It used to have. It used to be really the center, the center of journalism, the center of culture. It was a very, very trendy street. Nowhere in Lebanon there was another equivalent street. It was later that in the Christian part things started developing. Espas de Mil, then in Ashrafi, but all up the fifties, sixties, and seventies, Hamra was the main center, and it had so many movie theaters. So downtown uh, back. By then, it was inaccessible. No, the, the downtown cinemas. was accessible. There ah. were some movies yes. here downtown, but Hamra was the trendy place. Downtown was the business place. Hamra had uh, uh, Hamra had had the culture where the youth go out. Yeah, downtown where my dad used to have his store. You know, it was the business side. Mm-hmm. Hamra was the entertaining and the cultural part. The university is nearby, American University of Beirut, which is a huge university. And then you had the movie theater. That's the most important thing. You know, that's where you had so many movie theaters before the arrival of the multiplex. It was just a, each building had one movie theater or two max. Yes. Cinema Hamra, Cinema Piccadilly, Cinema yeah. El Dorado, Cinema Colise, which was such a beautiful building. 
Which one is Coliseu? Coliseu, it's, it's one, if you're taking the main street and Hamra, you turn right, it's just an abandoned building today. It's not hmm. abandoned. There is a living building on top of it, but you have I to see. go down. Right. We always loved it because we always thought it looked like a church from the inside and it had a big red satin curtain that opened hmm. before the movie starts. It was considered actually the most luxurious cinema at that time. In Hamra. In Hamra, yeah. And then, you know, slowly that vanished with the war. You know, you fast forward roughly four or five decades later, and now you have shopping malls and places of cinema. El Dorado discount clothes. Uh, I don't think the Piccadilly reopened. I think the Piccadilly... Well, the, the, all these movie theater closed completely. Yeah. There's not a single one not of one. them. Substituted by, uh, you know, yes, by uh, Superstore or by, by Shoe Store. Oh, right. There's an obsession with shoe stores. Every place you find oh, somebody opening up a shoe store. But how old were you back then? We're talking... In Until 19. Until 19. So we're talking really 1983, during... I left to the States. So that's intense part of the Civil War, and you're yeah. there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And can you take me back to those years? Were you, as a child, was it the childhood that kind of outweighed all the conflict in the background? Or Childhood was, and teenage. I was I was beginning my teenage in '75. Yes. When the war started, and uh, I was 12 years old in 1975, and I left at 19. So. So adolescence and war combined at the same time. Was the war taking a central role in your youth and your teenage years in Hamra? It did, but yeah. it did. Uh, today, I think about it in retrospect. Mm. It's funny because I remembering it more now emotionally than it used to be back then. Because back then you're just a child, you're just a teenager, you don't remember, sure. you just live things. Yeah. When you take distance and you travel away and then you grow up and then uh, with time you start thinking in details how that period was significant to the way I am now. Mm. It is so embedded in my psychology. It is the most fundamental part of my upbringing is the war between 75 and 83. I wrote a film about it called West Beirut. But when I think about it today, it's even more significant than when I wrote West Beirut. What do you mean by that? It's more significant because I feel like I want to go back and write the second part of my movie. The second part of West Beirut. Because I'm remembering new stuff like my involvement mm -hmm. in music at that time. Yeah. And my, op my curiosity about the Western world, actually. It was during that time in Beirut during the Civil War, where I started to feel that I am longing or I am just dying to emigrate. I'm telling you when I was 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, yes. you know. Yes. These are the formative years where I started to realize, today, I'm, th I'm, I'm remembering it, not yes. back then, right. today, how much I was felt more at ease with the Western world than with the Eastern world. Is that a direct link back to those cinemas? Certainly it played a role. I was mm. in a French school, don't mm -hmm. forget that, mm -hmm. the Lycée Francais, which actually injected in you some of your Western knowledge. Yes. I was surrounded by Christians who were technically, you would say, more, more open to Western civilization because they, historically they have a, a bridge. I'm not making this as a, state, as mm -hmm. a judgment, it's just a statement. And these are the Christians that stayed in West Beirut? That stayed in West Beirut, yeah. my school at that time. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, my teacher were French, everything. And then Beirut, don't forget it. Beirut is very cosmopolitan. Back in the 70s, you know, we were very, very ex exposed to Western civilization. Uh, max, more than today. Uh, and, and I think also it's something that's embedded in you genetically. It's something part of your genes what do you feel more comfortable with? And I remember I started having a rupture with my 
Middle Eastern and I started getting more comfortable with the idea that maybe I belong in the Western world more. And it was all, you know, it was not elaborate at that time. I was a child. I was a teenage. But I was just fascinated with anything that I could get my hands on, whether it's films or whether it's music or whether it's dreams. I dreamt a lot of the Western world. And today I feel like uh, how, how comfortable I am in the Western world and yet how still attached I am to my past. So I, it's, it's a very strong bond between my views between this world and the other world, the world where I lived half of my life. I lived half in Lebanon and half, over, more than half of this overseas between Los Angeles, Paris, New York. And at the same time, I can't turn my back toward my past. I, I think if I was born in the Western world from the beginning, I would not have this thinking that I'm sharing with you right now. They're very, very, they're very intertwined. Uh, but it also elaborates that how comfortable you can be in Hamra during war and still feel like you belong to the Western world. I think that's the power of Hamra, the power of Ras Beirut as well, that that is the probably the last bastion of the region. Probably. That, that has that. It doesn't have it anymore today, I agree. Right. And we lost some of that. We, I, I think we lost some of that magic, but maybe we didn't. I don't know. I, I don't want to give you over philosophical questions and a lot of analysis. You know, because I'm not very into analyzing a situation. I just give my answers usually based on my very, very immediate experience. It's a very personal experience. I've I been tossing the idea of the clash of civilization tremendously in the last couple of years. And that's why my next script, my next film, which I'm planning to film next year, mm. is exactly about the clash between those culture, that how incompatible they have become. I believe that today... It is very incompatible. I, I believe today Islam and the West are extremely incompatible. That's what I feel. does not mean that every Muslim is incompatible. I feel as a culture it's becoming incompatible, which is, which is making me, you know, compare things very, very on a minute level. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, it's something that is very personal because I lived through this ambivalence. Where are you? Are you Middle Eastern or are you Western? You probably will ask yourself the same question. Where do we fit? Finally, we fit everywhere and nowhere. And I like that. I'm not confused about it. I'm not complex about it. I feel like I could very easily live here and there. I prefer in, this, in the meantime living in the West because this is where I managed to make my films. I have to be realistic about it. This is where I get appreciated and you're not attacked for expressing your views as in Lebanon, you get attacked and viciously attacked if you express the views that does not fit the system. I'm guessing in the background, that's what you're referring to when you say we lost a bit of the magic of that part of our history. It's the freedom, the ultimate freedom of expression. Back in the 70s and Hamra, yeah. uh, there was real press, there were real yes. journalism. Yeah. Uh, it was not just things that were so divided. It was a bit more complex. There were Christian in West Beirut. We coexisted with the Christians, and then we accused the Christians of being right wing. Then I became right wing. Then I became left wing. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It was, sure. it, it was healthier actually, to tell you the truth. But it still got inspired. I mean, the next film that I'm doing is completely done in the West, in the, in the United States, but it's also related to the Middle East issue. So it's that clash abroad as opposed to at home. 
or whatever. Did, did you read the book Clash of Civilization? Sure, by, Samuel Huntington. Yeah, it's yeah. a great book. It's a great and, inspiration to me, and it's very valid, even though a lot of people contradicted the book. I st- it was a huge inspiration for me to write the next film. But I'm guessing it's not an adaptation of that. No, no, no. You yeah, can't adapt, you can't adapt a no, history. No, no, no. Yeah. It's, it's a totally fictional <laughs> right, story, but right. the yeah. idea that uh, the West and the East are not totally compatible mm. is something that I agree with Samuel Huntington, and my whole story is about that. What's interesting, though, is that there was an anomaly in that history, which is going back to it's my parents' generation, and I think you're maybe a bridge between these two generations because you you're growing up at the onset of the war, that Hamra Ras Beirut, and let's go a little step further, West Beirut, uh, was an exception. Because that is genuine diversity. What you just described, you have a multitude of ideas, a multitude of religions, a multitude of whatever, living together, even during times of war, allowing to express their views together, separately. That is something that has disappeared completely. Not just from uh, from the region, from from what was left of that part of the world. I think it's gone. And I say this as someone who's now old enough to look back at the immediate aftermath of the Civil War, that there was still a bit of that left. And it's really the last two decades, the last two and a half decades. Uh, yeah, it's in the last two and a half decades. Yeah. You know, when I look at my, my path in the Middle East, I came back hoping to be part of a... You know, to be part of a renaissance. We all we all was, were, believed that after after the war was over, there's going to be like a nice flourishing area, and it really was aborted. Was yeah. killed. I think it was killed with the death of Hariri. You know, there was something happening. We got rid of the occupiers, the Syrian. I consider the Syrian the main occupiers, not the Israelis. The Israeli were occupiers, but the Syrian occupation was much more vicious and much more dangerous, and uh, it had to be fought. And I think Lebanon went upside down the day he was killed. You're in the early 1980s, and you're, you're maybe seeing Hamra change for the worse as a teenager, and you leave. You head to the States. Was, that, was the career in storytelling in your mind back then, or was it something that you were going to maybe test and see what happened? I think I had an idea, a very clear idea, what I wanted to work in storytelling early on, even before I leave to the States. The States just cemented it. Mm. When I took the plane in 1983, I went to Las to, to San Diego State University. It was to study film. I'm guessing that's your first trip outside first of trip. Lebanon. No, I mean, well, I've traveled to Europe when we were younger. Okay, yeah. But this is, that's it. This is when I graduated from high school yes. and I'm, the move. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was a one-way ticket. And I went to, you know, to California. I studied film and I stayed there. And this is where I started, you know, developing skill for filmmaking. As an assistant camera, I was at the beginning. And this is where I made all for 15 years, even more than this. And the States were very formative years because this is where I learned in, in school and then working on films how to do film. It's a craft. Yes. It's not a philosophy. A lot of it is based on technical know-how, how you set the camera, where you set the light, how you move a camera, stuff like this. But as a student entering the, that world in California, how did you get yourself into the what are now considered very, very important films of the 1990s. It's the same way like everybody does it. You graduate, you yeah. work as a, a trainee, mm-hmm. uh, you work as a driver, you, yeah. <laughs> then you work as a volunteer, and then slowly you make your way until somebody pick you up, and then you move up the ladder. I moved up the ladder. I did not graduate from university 
from college immediately becoming a director or immediately becoming a director of photography. I graduated just wanting to work. Yeah. And I started looking in magazines that advertise for student film. They're looking for technicians, looking for So really camp. the ground up. Just I started from the, from the very bottom ground yeah. up. You yeah. know, I cannot tell you how much I wanted to start from the ground up. Yeah. And this is the only way for me. There are people who make leap, they leapfrog much faster. But I was not interested in leapfrogging. I wanted to learn the aspect because I in absolutely enjoy the process. I'm going to guess that that gives you healthy exposure to all types, all, all work that's involved with making a film. It certainly plays a huge role because you know you a little actually, bit of everything. Yeah. Because you can solve problems. You don't only right. just delegate, but yeah. you actually put your finger on what needs to be solved. And when there's a crisis now, you can manage it you can, if yes. you need to. Yeah. If, if the director of photography tells you, look, I have a light here or the sun's rise from here or yeah. the electrician or the editing... And you've done all that stuff. It helps you a lot resolve the problem quicker. It makes you more technically savvy. Right. Consequently, more artistically savvy. I mean, you don't... It's not a condition to have. It's just much better to have. Yeah. You know, there are people who become director. They don't know most, more, most of the technical stuff. And they learn it very quickly. I'm, I'm speculating here. Film direction degree does not make you a film director. It makes no. you maybe know how the process is done theoretically, but then you need to actually get your... You need to get your shit together. Get you your need, shit together. Yeah, you need, you need to get your hand right. and And get and used do. to being yelled at and all that. And, and just, you need yeah. to be on a studio and see yeah. how does a film get made. A film gets made because there is a process. It's yeah. very, very, very sophisticated and it's very methodical. It's not chaotic. You can make films chaotically. Yes. It, it, nobody says you can't. There's no formula. It's just the what I learn came from very, very good school, which is Hollywood. You know? So you, that was a deliberate decision to go straight to California. Absolutely. You weren't going to flirt with New York or any other scene. Not at all. California was the goal. That's right. I applied yeah. to two universities, mm. and I got accepted. The first universities was San Diego State, and I went there. And I knew that they had a film program. You know, at the, you know back in the 80s, early 80s, film, film school was not so common yet. Yeah. It became progressive. Today... Every goddamn village <laughs> teaches film. But it's so trendy with the digital arrival. People think like, yeah, now I just need an iPhone and I can shoot a movie. They think it's easy, but it's not. It's, yeah. You still need to learn the storytelling process. Just because you can shoot and edit on iPhone does not mean you're going to make a good story. Uh, believe me. And that storytelling process takes years and years and years. Yeah, it takes, yeah. takes studying, takes, you know, and find also that what you want to talk about. But you're, nine, this is... So this is just after the Israeli invasion, 1982. Yeah. A year later, you're in California, San Diego. From the violence of Beirut to the, whatever, tranquility of the California coast, is Lebanon in the, in the background as a student? When I arrived, yeah. Lebanon was so far behind me. I Even just, though it's on the news there, I'm guessing this is I the Marines and this is the embassy care. bombing. No, and the embassy bombing, I was still in Beirut. Oh, you, okay, so you left yes. after. Okay. Like right after, yes. a little bit after, you know, December 1983. When I left, I went back, I went to the States, not wanting to look back. Mm. I was just so eager to embrace and study and just dwell into what I've been wanting to do. If you saw Lebanon on the news, was it something that wanted at any moment there were news from time to time yeah. when there was phone lines I would speak to my parents I would hear certain things I was very affected because my parents was there my brothers was there two of my brothers was still in Beirut so of course I was concerned but I was really really like 90% of my mind was into 
finishing school and getting to learn. There's something interesting here. This generation where there's no internet, you're relying on good lines to make a phone call maybe once a week, once a month. Going back to the earlier point about clash of civilizations, that kind of choice forces you to really become part of San Diego and California because you're not able to, even if you want to, to really think about Lebanon on an hourly basis. Today, you just open your phone and you're in touch with the world at any given point. Back then, you have to become, in a sense, American or whatever you want to call it, a native of San Diego, where Lebanon has to take a back step. And I wonder if that's the that's the significant change over the last three decades, four decades. I, I can't put my finger on it exactly if technology helps you stay in contact with your peers and with your past or not. That's probably a bit of a theoretical question mm. for me. Mm. I could at least be the most sincere with myself to tell you that when I arrived in California, I wanted to study and I wanted to learn because I loved this, uh, this filmmaking process. This is where all yeah. my interest was, but finishing you, school yes. and doing it. Now... But even then, you're, you're not able to go back because of war. and I did not want to go and back. And you did not want to go I back. I did not yeah. want to go back. Yeah. I was able to go back. Mm. You know. So this you, is a deliberate choice. So, it was a yeah. total deliberate choice, like the choice that I've taken now, also mm-hmm. not wanting, not returning to Beirut until all those guys are ejected. Oh, so, that's, uh, so you're disconnected? I'm, not, I'm totally disconnected. I'm not going back. I will continue talking about the region if I have to. Yeah continue fighting but i'm not gonna go back I, I the reason i'm poking at this period of life is because i think it's i i want to imagine that west beirut is autobiographical to the point that you were flirting with filmmaking as an as a teenager in beirut even with, not necessarily with a camera but at least in your mind that maybe the stories are emerging in your own mind it's true do you, and do you take those with you to america even as a student working on movies that have nothing to do with Lebanon, are they are they growing in your mind? Are They're they growing. Same? Storytelling mm. is a broad idea. Yeah, it, it it defined itself further while I was studying and after graduating and after working in film as an assistant camera, as a grip, as an electrician. The idea started to come. What do I want to talk about? Right. But storytelling is something that's more inside of you. You don't decide one day to wake up and say, oh, today I'm going to be a storyteller. It does not work that way. It's something that grows in your genes slowly. It's something that you're predisposed. I can't say that one film particularly influenced me in my childhood to want to make movies. Not at all. It, I can't put the finger on it. All I know that my dad made us watch a lot of movies. He took us a lot of cinema even before the war started. We've always gone to a lot of movies. My oh, so dad it was, was a family. Oh, my trip. dad was a big, big movie guy. I see. I see. You know, that was his only form of entertainment. Actually, he used to right. take us all the time, prior to the civil war. Yes. And I think the experience of sitting in a movie theater and the curtain that opened up, and then, and it, it's magical. In fact, I used to go when the war started, just slightly around the war. Actually, there were a couple of cinemas in West Beirut that were extremely trashy. One of them is called Cinema Aida, which is like a cheapest movie theater that stink how bad it is. When you say done. trashy, are these the erotic movies? Well, the, there were two. There, there were was Cinema Aida and Cinema Samiramis, which is okay. a movie theater that most people don't know about, but mm. they were in, in the poor neighborhood. Yeah. One in Zaydeniye, 
uh-huh. which is like so it's not really in Hamra itself. not at all it's, yeah yeah either and, and they were cheap <laughs> yeah the movie theater were very cheap and mm. inexpensive and we could afford them easy yeah and in, in Hamra used to pay three the equivalent of three dollar yes either one and a half dollar <laughs> My cousins we used to go with them, and they used to play all the trashy movies, a little bit semi-sexy movie, yeah. the erotic film, and also the 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 B C series, and there was a huge culture about B C C B series. Oh, oh, B, oh so B, B, B films. Yes, B films. Yes, yes. Yeah, you know, mm. like the the the, the West straight to. <laughs> There was no VHS yeah, at that right. time, but they used to call them, you know, the, the cheap movies that yeah. don't make the big round. There's mm-hmm. not the big Hollywood pictures. They come from. Uh, you know, from Italy, from cheap movies. Yes. All right. And I went to see a lot of them because I remember when you go in, they used to have the guy who used to carry a basket and sell you Pepsi <laughs> and chocolates and popcorn, you know, and you would be walking on the aisle. Walking in the aisle. Just, really, yeah. I remember that very well. <laughs> so, you know, the, the movie experience, it does not start with an incident. I, for me, huh? I'm talking just about for me. It start, it's, it's something that is difficult to define. It starts somewhere, wanting to share a story, wanting to tell a story. I can't define it. I've been thinking about it for the last 30 years. I can't figure it out. When does this first impulse came? As a big fan of West Beirut, I think the answers are in the movie. And it's the viewer that maybe draws from that film what it takes to become a storyteller. Or what, it, what, it, what happens to you when you're suddenly perhaps not forced to become a storyteller, but you have no other destination yeah maybe there's no other avenue yeah maybe um and you're developing the craft this so this is a you're a camera assistant i started as a grip as a grip so bare i mean the beginning you're a grip it's a career career you you can be a career grip it's 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 a very demanding job it's a very important job i knew i did not want to be a grip all my Mm. life but this is where i was given the opportunity and how many years does it take you to finally stumble into Quentin Tarantino? We're talking five, ten. ten years. Yeah. That's a good lesson for any up-and-coming I filmmaker. started in 83, <laughs> and I was with Quentin in 1990, so, okay. so seven years. But you're also at his early years, so you're both kind of... I mean, he's not a well-known filmmaker when you, when you meet no, him. No, Reservoir Dog, it was his first film. First film. Did you know him outside of the film not circuit? No. Did not know him, never and he got to know him outside. I yeah. mean, sometime he used to invite the crew to watch film at his house. Yeah. But uh, that's about it. You know, I, I, I get asked a lot of questions about Quentin, and I try not to answer them a lot because it does not concern me that much. Sure, Just, sure. you know, I mean, it was a great experience, and he's a, one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. I'm but only, that's about it. Well, the, so the only reason actually I brought him up is because... No, you can bring him up. It's just I don't know what, what, how, how knowledgeable I am of this person. Well, I, I'm, what I'm curious about is, is, is it in those movies that you suddenly, you feel the, I don't know if confidence is the right word, but the ability to then begin your own path? Certainly it played a role because mm. he was such an enthusiast a filmmaking and a compulsive filmmaker mm-hmm. and super talented talker. Yeah. You know, he was very interesting and very smart. And certainly it, it opened up things in you. He just, uh, you know, you feel like uh, he knows how to express himself. Yeah. He knows how to catch the attention, how to have fun on a show, mm-hmm. on a film. You know, it's so, uh, it's so tied to his, to his intestine, to his guts. Certainly it, it frees you up. Is this a problem in terms of 
saying goodbye or did you do it? No, I had two days left on Jackie Brown. Mm -hmm. I did the whole movie. I had literally two days before we wrap. And then I got a call from my French producer. He says, look, we want you to go to Beirut and see if we can shoot West Beirut because we had the money. Oh, so West Beirut was already in the... There was I launched the financing. Okay, so it was there in the background. In the background right. while I was working on Jackie Brown. And two days before, on, it was, I got a call on a Friday. Yeah. And the producer from France, says, look, I have good news and I have a bad news. The, I said, start with the good news. He says, we have the money to make your film. And what's the bad news? He says, we have half of as much as you want. <laughs> I said, so what do we do? He says, well, you have to fly to Lebanon as soon as you can. And see, can we make this movie for that amount of money? So I was very excited, and I told the production that Jackie Brown that I have to leave on Monday, and you know, and I left and I went to Beirut to see can you do this movie with the money that we got, and we couldn't. It's impossible, but we did it. Oh, you did at the end with yeah, that with we, that budget with that budget. Yeah. yeah. So that's so you, that's another valuable lesson that maybe. You can succeed with even half of the estimated cost. Yeah, but, I mean, we died at the end. You know, we were very, <laughs> very, very tired. At the is, end. I mean, maybe personal, but is that part of the reason why you decided to hire your brother? Was it cost cutting? Absolutely no. Nothing to do with Absolutely that. Absolutely. Okay, no. so that's an irrelevant to the totally okay. irrelevant. He was part of the movie from. Yeah, yeah. He, he was a part because I remember that I made him read a script one day. We were driving in the car with my parents. Mm-hmm. And he was sitting in the back, and I saw him in the review mirror reading and laughing, and he was 15 years old. Yes. And he just couldn't stop laughing mm. the whole time. And then I said to myself, my God, he gets it. He gets it. He understands all the nuance. And finally, I realized that I was writing not just about my life, but about him, the way I knew him. Right. So there was a lot of part of the impulse in my brother Rami. Yes. Uh, the way he talks is the way I talk also. Mm-hmm. He was very familiar with the material without putting any effort. Yeah. And then after I casted other people, I looked for a lot of people. I was not convinced. And then finally I said, you know what? I should not have to look forward further. Let me go and talk to him. And I read with him once and I said, damn, he, he is the role. And I asked my parents, I says, okay, what do you want? I said, I want to take him out of school. They oh. said, okay, we will take him out of school. And I talked to his uh, lycée français and the, uh, the, direction, the director agreed. So he left school to show the movie. Which was harder, convincing your parents or convincing the school? <laughs> it was not hard. My parents were was, so for it and, yeah. and, and the school was so for it. And it was you, not hard. And you saw yourself in him when you were doing that yes. beginning? Yeah. I wanted to write about a teenage growing up in the war because the teenage is the formative years. Yes. I did not want to write about an adult or about a young adult. Mm-hmm. He couldn't be 20, 21, 22. Yeah. I want to write about a guy whose just his sexuality is starting to really peak or to develop, yes. not peak, but to develop. And I find that this age, the teenage is, is when you discover the music and you discover sex. You know, my favorite my personal favorite scene is the black and white footage, Rami and Omar, sorry, Tade and Omar, I shouldn't say Rami, yeah, Tade and, and Omar are carefully looking at those curves, yeah. the thighs. Yeah. And you, I mean, you're sort of, you're suddenly going back to your 12, 13, 14 year old brain. And you remember what was... At how there. thrilling that moment can be. Yeah. So you, there's a very pure innocence in that scene. 
And Beirut also seems to be fairly innocent up until April 13, 1975. The, the f- opening clip of singing the national anthem over the French one and this silliness almost of getting the French spelling wrong. Beirut is as, the story is as innocent as any story can be and then it just perverts into something else. But even then you're capturing moments of innocence. And I think that's, maybe that's the power of the movie for someone who lives in Beirut and remembers growing up in West Beirut, especially in teenage years. I think that it's, it's a healthy reminder that the war is not central. Violence is there. You can talk about politics. It's true. But there's, you're, you're still a child. You're still an adolescent. You, you still, still have your needs and your desire and, yeah. and you still have the worries of any teenage, except that in wartime, it's enhanced. Exactly. You know, because now, you know, you know, you gotta, you know, you don't have that much freedom because it's dangerous and you have a lot of restrictions. And don't forget, we were occupied by the Syrians since 1976. Yes. Uh, I was 13 years old. You know, the Syrian occupation was was one that marked me a lot because the Israeli occupation happens for one year in Beirut when they came. But the Syrian occupation started in 1976 Till 2005. Was the Syrian occupation... Was the worst thing Lebanon could ever go through. Then can I ask you, this is of course now revisiting the movie, the Syrians do not play a central role in that film. Or at least the Syrian army is not really there. There's the clips of fighting. You have the Israeli uh, fighter jet, you have the you have Arafat and Sharon, you have Beirut is being bombed. Right. But the Syrians are not directly part of the movie. No. Is that... Why? Why did I... Is that censorship? uh, No, absolutely. Nothing to do with censorship. No, absolutely not. Yeah. I guess it's in my few last years since Rafi al-Hariri's death and Samir Asir and everybody who was killed after that, that I woke up to a reality that we were kind of like sleeping a bit on it. I was not aware. We we lived through the most atrocious time with the Syrian, but for some reason, he was the enemy that sleeps in your home. You get mm. used to it. Mm. You understand? Yeah. And and I was at the time considered a left wing. So When you made West Beirut? When I made West Beirut. Left wing by who? By Lebanese? By Lebanese standards. Standards, okay. Right. I was a lefty. Although that does not take I'm a not, central not, role in the movie either. It's no, not a, no. Yeah. We wanted to talk about the arrival of the Israeli army yes. in 1983, which is the year, year later, when I left. Right. It, it's, it's autobiographical in terms of chronology, mm. history. Yeah. The Syrian occupation is a film by itself. <laughs> yeah. You understand? Sure. To talk about the Syrian atrocities, it's yeah. nothing compared to, you know, it's the most vicious, the most violent, the most dangerous. Then I want to ask you, yeah. since you're the person to ask, why isn't there a movie about that? People are scared. They're scared to death. Absolutely. I was arrested not because of the Israeli occupation. I was arrested because of the Syrian and Hezbollah occupation. And I think it is a full-fledged occupation. And, and uh, that's why the country is not taking, taking off. Your personal views evolve in the aftermath of Rafiq Hariri's death, or I'm guessing in the build-up to that yeah. moment. So this is now seven years after West Beirut. Do you ever look back on that movie and think that that may have, that should have played a bigger role, or is that something that's... No, uh, once that's the film, over. Yeah, it's, it's over. Done. Okay. Uh, after Rafiq Hariri was killed, and there was the big demonstration, yes. something new happened to me, Yeah. you know, to a lot of people. 
I felt for the first time that it's time to turn the page yeah. on the past of who's left, who's right, who's the pro-Palestinian, who's against the Palestinian. Yeah. And now a new battle is starting and it's going to be good because we kicked those out, we kicked the Syrians out. Yeah. It came out because of, because of a mass demonstration. It's yeah. the biggest mass demonstration in the history of Lebanon. All right, and we challenged the previous demonstration that the Hezbollah people did in Riyadh al-Salah. You know, it was twice as big. And were, we were you in Lebanon? Those, yeah, oh, yeah. You were there? I, I was living there. Oh, so you moved back yes. after. Okay. Yes. So I'm going to step back again just a bit. You make West Beirut. It, it's critically, it's well-received. Uh, unfortunately, I don't know why, it's hard to buy in Lebanon. No, you can uh, because we haven't reprinted it because people don't reprint a lot of DVDs anymore. Because you can on, find it on Netflix. You now. get it, yeah. Well, that's that's the last few months, right? Yes. That's, yes. You get it also burned copies from all these other places, yeah. but the original DVD, I used to have it. Yeah. And I, I mean, I don't. It's it's a shame to not see it at Virgin. We or may Antoine. release it again. Okay, you really should just for yeah, the yeah. sake of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, presence. you know, today people do not buy CDs and DVDs anymore. People just either download or watch on streaming. But we're considering it. The burden is on them. Watching your movies on an iMac, uh, sorry, on an iPad or a laptop, it's just a different experience. I rewatched West Beirut recently on a this MacBook, and it just it's. It's not the same. You can't. You need to see it in a movie. Every yeah. movie that gets shot needs to be seen. Um, Absolutely. I mean, so you, you step out of the Lebanese storytelling world. You leave West Beirut and pursue Marseille, a teenage love story in Marseille. And that's an adapted film, adapted from a book, I think it's called Chimo, is that right? It's called Lila Says. Or there's a pseudonym for the author. Pseudonym, yeah. Ch- Chimo, I Chimo, believe. nobody Chimo. knows. Nobody knows, yeah. Why back to France after going to West Because uh, this is where I find people who are producing my films. This is where I get financing my films. Except the last one, you know, even the last one, The Insult, Adir mm. Amtletashin. Uh, was financed mainly by Anton Sahnawi, who is Lebanese, and some money came from France. But I find that I'm managing to to continue my career with European financing, with French financing. But you wanted to make this movie, or you were called to make this movie? No, I was asked if I wanted to adapt it. And uh-huh. when I met with the, with the producer, I said, how about if we do it in the States? in the shadow of 9-11, where right. 9-11 just happened, yeah. and you have this air boy who meets a blonde chick. So that was your initial yes. structure. And then, yeah. and then I said, what if we make this love story in the context of 9-11 aftermath? And I love the idea because it's, it, it changed everything. Sure. The only problem is I could not find financing in the States. I see. It was, it was too early mm. to talk about a love story between an Arab and a blonde American few, you know, just after the 9-11. People did not want to hear the other point of view. Right. Things have changed today. France was more, at maybe more more adjusted to that kind of... Yeah, more yeah. in touch with Lebanese culture. America has become more and more interested in the Middle East recently, yeah. later. Mm-hmm. But back then, it was still far away. Still, uh, you know, still geographically far. And you, you managed to really get into a teenage lust in a way that I've never seen. I mean, the, the, the eloquence to her vulgarity <laughs> is so, so striking. And I think uh, I, I, I remember being in Lebanon, and I think this was 
maybe it was released. Was it early 2005? It, it was. Got, it was released ten days, ten days before Rafi Hariri was assassinated. Right, and then it kind of just disappeared. It disappeared. It disappeared because you know Hariri was killed. Yeah, but uh, I mean, I was in my early twenties watching that movie, and I felt uh, joyously uncomfortable because the the subtle jabs at all people involved, I think, is something you do so well. You get you make, you make everyone hate and sympathize with everyone involved. And the story is that layered. I find her to be seductive and hostile. Uh, she's, she's provocative. A, provocative. She's a teenager, but she's also a woman. She's an right. adult. Yeah, it's always interesting to create a little bit of layers and ambiguity in script instead of being black and white. And I don't like black and white film. Right. And I think all... black and white in life sometimes. But just in film, it's dramatically more interesting to be a bit more complex and ambivalent doesn't mean that I'm ambivalent all the time. But, but you take a good, you get a good grasp of Marseille. Were you in France before? No. So this is your first... Experience. For me, it was a good grasp of Marseille, but not for the French. The French didn't think it was an authentic way because, you know, they have had several films about the neighborhood, the, uh, you know... The satellites and the... Uh... The suburbs <laughs> and everything. I, I grew up, I knew American suburbs, Lebanese suburbs. I don't know French suburbs. I wrote the film to be shot in the States with American dynamics. Mm. And then when I couldn't do it, I just changed the language. But I kept the dynamism and the psychology very much. That's why the film did not work in France at all, because it does not match to their psychology. But that's why the film worked in the States, and it was at Sundance Film Festival, and my life changed after that. So I did an American film in French language, actually. That ended up doing well in America. Right. <laughs> but not in France. Right. And Lebanon missed it because of the assassination. Right. Right. But it definitely... Even the series that I'm doing right here, it's an American series in French language. Oh, I see. But is that same same issue that the American... No, there's no, that's, no that's different. It's just my way of working has always pertained to where I studied. Yes. I studied filmmaking in America, not in France. Right. France has become my host become my, you know, that's where I live, that's where I raise my daughter. But uh, my schooling is not French school at all. You understand? Oh, my schooling is an American school. So I try to blend in, though. I don't blend in. I don't even blend in. I mean, how could you say I blend in French filmmaking with American... I don't blend in French filmmaking at all. It's pure American cinema, simply because I studied there, not because it's better. It's just the school that I knew. I don't particularly like the French school. I don't like the way they um, teach screenplay writing. I don't like... Uh, I don't think French cinema is that great. Uh, because... Is it the storytelling craft? Storytelling craft, yeah. There's not much stories to tell. But you're back in Lebanon. Lila Disa is out. You're witnessing the March 14 revolt. You're taking part in that. Every day. Every day. And uh, somebody that we both admire, Samir Asir, is assassinated. Right. Three months later, June 2005. I think of him as probably the, the finest Lebanese storyteller. And I say this because he's not just a historian or a journalist, or I don't think politicians even, I don't think that term should be associated with him. He's way above these things. I think of him as a storyteller. And I always think that that moment, his assassination, to me is the end of the spirit, what you were talking about earlier, of what was supposed to happen after March 14. That it, in those few months, 
crazy things happen, the Syrian army leaves. And that weight, three-decade burden, for the first time is gone. Weeks later, you have somebody decent, a decent writer, Naik Samir Asir, who is killed. And then, of course, the string of assassinations begin. But I was there, you were there, and I see, I sense that that is really the end of all that post-Civil War yearning that Lebanon would turn the page. I don't know, would, would you agree to I that? Felt that. I, yeah. I felt that. I reconciled with, with all religion when we were going down to the, the tomb where the grave, yeah. uh, Hadid's grave, and you would find uh, Christian, you, you would find priest yeah. and uh, female priest standing. I swear, I would never forget that image. I remember one time, accidentally it happened, not that it was planned, that you had the sheikh, the imam, praying, and then suddenly there's like six or seven female women yeah. priests I don't know which church they came and they stood and they started praying at the same time. It was fantastic. And then there was a photograph that there was something happened in front of me. I mean, there were kids from Tariq which is considered very Muslim area. They were carrying a big poster of Rafiq Hariri in the arms of Virgin Mary. I'll never yes. forget that. Yes. It, it happened right in front of me, like one meter away. It was a, a nice rebirth because you could say now we can turn the page that's it this is what it is this is it's happening right now at the price of a of an assassination but yeah. lebanon is doing it and then the forces of evil win unfortunately in the arab world always forces of evil win this is how it's been you know so it took it was a great it was a yeah. great 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 year it was the arab springs way before the arab springs started right. i think the arab springs started in 2005 in lebanon absolutely absolutely it took 15 years for that energy to burst after the Civil War ended, but there was a moment that has not been recaptured since. No. Yeah, and I think it's almost impossible to make those... Yeah, everything has to line up properly at yeah. one moment for that to work. Khalas, it's, it's, yeah. it's doomed. I think Lebanon is doomed for a very long time. And we're now three decades after the Civil War ended. I mean, the Civil War was 15 years, half that length so i think it's yeah it's 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 extremely difficult to capture that once again but you're there and is your mind working on the attack or are you working on other ideas no i was working on another ideas and then um, because of the leela says i was approached by a producer in in new york who's in, in los angeles no no in new york in new york uh which is a company called focus features which is part of uh, Universal Studio and they said we would like to develop a story for you read this book and I read it and I absolutely loved it and uh, we got involved Joel and me my ex-wife and we started uh, writing the script and we felt like we're onto something really really powerful very very powerful so but that takes you away from Lebanon so you were yeah. you were you'd been based there since West Beirut more or less no 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 no, no. later I came oh. I came in 2003 Okay. But I came 2003 or two. I kept going back and forth to the States. I mm. still had some work to do. Yeah. After Lila says, it was turbulent years, very turbulent years, because Hariri was killed. And the projects that I wrote before, I couldn't make them in the United States because of 9-11. So I was, in a, I was stuck in a situation, yes. not knowing where to go. I had projects written that I couldn't develop in the States, that mm. I couldn't finance. Yeah. And in Lebanon... The situation was very critical. Do we want to be part of this uh, 
Arab Spring or not, the Lebanese Spring, yeah. you know, the March 14. And then uh, soon later, I got a call. I flew to New York and I met this producer. He says, we saw Leela says in West Beirut and would love to collaborate with you. And then I wrote it. And then I had problems with, with them. And then they pulled out and took us a while to get the script rights back because Focus Features took them. It's part of the contract. I see. So we were stuck in Beirut between 2007 and 2011. So in, while, while you're stuck... We was, were stuck, was, in the true sense of the word. Stuck financially, stuck geographically. I did not know where to go. I did not know how to move on. It was nice to see you in Beirut those years. I ran into you two times, once in Hamra, once in Jamezi. Uh, and you were very. You seemed to be in a good mood on both occasions. I was not in a good mood. No. They were the hardest, these are the hardest. I call you at maybe uh, the right time. No, no. These, yeah, you probably caught me in the yeah. right time. But these were the hardest years between yeah. 2007 and 2011. Literally four years of incredible pain. It was very difficult because I couldn't make my projects happen, and I couldn't move back to the states because what am I going to do? Go back to the states with? And then my daughter was born in Beirut in 2008. So we were out of work, out of money, out of job, out of everything. And two of us, not just me, me and my ex-wife, Joelle. And these were probably, when I think about it, these were the hardest year ever in my life. Much harder than the war, much harder than anything. And then the, the, the reversal happened when actually we managed to convince the Americans to give us the rights of the screenplay, the attack, and we financed it in France. The French bought it in 2011 and that's when I went and I shot the film and then my life took a totally different turn when I look at my life today it's the pre-attack and post-attack so you're you're working you're doing exactly what you want to do you go to Tel Aviv it has there's Israelis in the movie speaking Hebrew you can't get a Greek or a Turk or whatever no. to speak Hebrew of course not you need a Palestinian who's from Israel who speaks Hebrew and Arabic at the That's same... Right. You need it and you go. That's and you, right. make, you make a very important movie about that conflict. And it's banned in Lebanon. As and not our, only in Lebanon, it's banned in the whole Arab world. It becomes, up until that point, probably your, your greatest accomplishment. Because it's... It's the story that matters. It's a personal struggle shared on both sides. You're putting the viewer into the most uncomfortable position. You sympathize and antagonize the same person. I think you do it well. My understanding is that you even took the extra step to notify the Lebanese authorities that you're making this movie. Because I was planning to go back to Beirut yeah. and I did not want them to think that I was a spy. Mm -hmm. If you're a spy, you don't inform the authority what you're going to do. <laughs> exactly. So I went about it, you know, the, the most legitimate way. And I knew that it was a shady law and it was a shady pro process, but to tell you the truth, I was not thinking about the legality or about the Palestinian cause. I was only thinking about the film, and I needed the film to be legitimate. I was not going to make it like most of the people could fake it, bring in an Egyptian actor and say, speak in English as if you're Israeli. Or does film that it in Morocco and no, try no, to recreate. No, no, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I wanted to be so authentic, and this is the reason I decided to go to Tel Aviv and shoot it there. That's it. And I, you know, I'm absolutely adamant that that was the right choice and it will always be. That's why I was saying that the Palestinian struggle is not based on religion. 
it's about a people's aspiration for nationwide, a nationhood. I was not going to make a fake film just to... I, it had to be shot in Tavish. You know, it's very funny because a lot of people, when they made this movie, Beirut, I think, few last year, you remember it was a film that lasted... Oh, the... Uh, uh, the in the what's 80s. What's his name? Um, it stayed three weeks. It yeah, three yeah, days yeah. In the it's movie filmed theater. in Casablanca, I think. It's filmed in Casablanca. Or, yeah. And then the Lebanese went up in arm, like, how could you do a movie <laughs> shot in Casablanca when it takes place in Beirut? The actors are not Lebanese. How could you say that they're... So you, you, if you are complaining about a movie that's not being authentic, yeah. why are you asking me not to be authentic? You should ask from everybody to be as authentic as possible. That's why when you want to do a movie, you, go, you try to go to that place where it is. And but you're doing something else, and I think that's the, that takes everything to its core, is that you are empowering Lebanon the right way. You're saying that it doesn't matter. I'm going to go make a movie... And if it's a good movie, I'll be well respected for it. And I, these these uh, ideas of looking at the Israeli, looking at Israel as a black hole that can't be touched, puts us at a severe disadvantage. Of course. Yeah, so you're actually, whether they like it or not, you're actually giving Lebanon a a platform, a, a something. Yes, thing. Of that course. Stories can be told this way, and this is the right way to do it, and we'll be respected for it. Now, what's extremely telling is that you come back to Lebanon and I mean they only make it a point until the next movie comes out right. so it shows even a political attack against you it's it not, is yeah. personal attack not just personal. a political it's yeah. very very personal but you know what we survived uh, I lost on the attack on Lebanon level but we won on international level the film was in Telluride it allowed me to finance yes. and do things much better yeah. today I you know the attack changed my life actually Lila says is what started it was, you know the, the, the film is, is, is it, it's, it's a continuation of everything sure. you do but after the attack things have yeah it's true I got very frustrated I was uh, I was boycotted in a very unfair way but, you know, we continue. And when I wrote the insult, it was actually as a rebuttal to what they did. Now, it's a rebuttal to those personal attacks against you. Yes. But your insult against that worker while you're living in Mono, I'm guessing, is unrelated to anything else. It's just it is an, related. It is. Absolutely. You're, because the people who mounted such a vicious campaign on me were the pro-Palestinian guys. The Palestinian mm. and the pro-Palestinian. And, uh, you know, they, uh, I took, you know, you spend, when you react to something, it's not because of your ego. You spend years working on a movie. Yes. Somebody with a flick of a button can just have it censored. It's unfair. Yeah. It's not like I started yesterday and today you boycotted me. I've been working on the attack for years. It took hell to make it work, to find the money and go shoot it. Somebody writes in Al-Akhbar's newspaper an article and he says, boycott this guy and half of the population follows and obeys. You understand? So it's, it's difficult because they are actually not making any... You know, I'm willing to apologize because they've asked me to apologize about going to Israel. I'm willing to apologize, okay? But they have to prove first that making the attack is helping the Zionist entity. <laughs> if they can prove it today... That my making is helping the Israelis. I'll be the first one to go apologize, but I bet you they can't even find that. You understand? There is absolutely no legal reasons to it. Exactly the same thing as the insult. When I did the insult, the actor, um, 
uh, one Kamil al-Basha, one best actor at Venice. Yes. This is the first time in Palestine's history where you have a Palestinian who won an award, and it's such a high award, all right? So you think that you guys, Palestinians, should be happy about it. What did they do? They boycotted the movie. But this time they only managed to boycott it in Ramallah, in Palestine, and in a couple of other places. They tried to lobby the Lebanese government of not sending it to the Oscar because, you know, the Oscar is a state uh, submission. It's not an individual yes. submission. They tried to mount an incredible campaign to tell the Lebanese government you cannot select the insult to represent Lebanon at the Oscar. Thank God we had a favorable minister who, you know, says, no, this is the film that is going to go to the Oscar. And then for the first time, we, Lebanon was at the Oscar. All this to tell you that uh, my fight against those people is not based on ego. It's based on, on logic. Yeah. You understand? Yeah. They have declared themselves enemy of anybody who does not agree with them. That's it. If you want to challenge an artist, challenging him ideologically, but you can't put him in jail. You spent, you can't, you spent one night... Well, less than 24 hours, right? And, and no, I was arrested at the airport. I was let go because Hariri interfered that day. Mm. And he said, you can't arrest this guy, let him go. <laughs> they took my passport and yes. then they referred me to the military tribunal the next day. Yeah. And next day I went and I appeared in front of a judge and I explained to him the case that, uh, you know, that this thing is an old thing and then I have not done anything to spy that I went there to make a movie five years earlier for the attack. Yes, yeah. You know, I was being tried on something that happened on my previous film, not on the last film. Yeah. Okay, so those people were trying anything they can to make it difficult for me, except that the judge says, you know, it's, it's, it's due, it's old. Okay. That's it, we can't try him now. But you do, you think that there, this was brought up then to circumvent the insult? 100%. Yeah. And this is a punishing you through your work. That's right. Yeah. That's it. Because I made the left in Lebanon the enemy. Yes. I made a lot of, you know, some of the newspaper, yeah. uh, Al Jadid, the new the TV Al Jadid. These yeah. are the people who, you know, we don't like each other. We fight, and we will continue fighting each other till till the end. You know, I uh, there's something in every movie that I don't know. I, I wanted to explore, which is whether it's the insult. Whether it's Lila Disa, the attack, West Beirut, you always have either a Muslim Christian story in the background that's growing, or Israel's in the background itself, or it's in the foreground. But there's these background conflicts that are there, and I think uh, that may be the power of the sub subplots within each movie. And I'll, I wanted to get one example in particular. Um, it's, it goes just sort of casually it's that the, uh, the Kamil Basha in, uh, in The Insult, he's married to a Lebanese. A Lebanese Christian. Who moved with him in the, in the camp. Right. That's clearly not just an accidental reference. That's put there deliberately. Yeah. Yeah. And of course. But, okay, so you have that. You have May in West Beirut, a Christian refugee entering uh, the building. You have uh, the, in the... Uh, the attack. A Palestinian she, who's married to a Christian. Married to a Christian, and she's the suicide bomber. Right. Right. What, what is the message there behind each 
relationship. Look, when you write a script, you have to take your characters and make them as complex as possible. So you're making them more complex. Yeah, by, by adding layers, by yeah. saying, you know, I am, uh, you know, it, it's interesting in, in a drama when you write film, when you write any fictions to make the, the, the protagonist yeah. and the antagonist in a difficult situation. It's just more appealing on screen. Yeah. By making, by bringing opposing force and blending them into one character, it becomes more interesting. Yeah. Uh, in, in Ali, uh, I mean, I mean Jafari, uh, in, in the attack, yeah. he's a Palestinian and an Israeli. He's yes. Palestinian by birth, but he carries the Israeli citizenship. Right. He's already carrying with him a problem. Yeah. Okay. In West Beirut, Tara is a teenage who is coming from the Muslim who has to confront a Christian girl, yes. and he has to live with this ambivalence about yeah. it. In in um, uh, the insult, you have the Tony character who is a right wing Christian, who has to meet a Palestinian, his arch enemy. Yes. And how do they connect? Yeah. It, it, you're taking opposing force and you're putting it in the same context. You're likely to have conflict. And yeah. film conflict in film is very important. Conflict and then the resolution are always explored in these similarities. I mean, Tony. Because and, I yeah. yeah. I mean, they're both very particular about their craft they both despise chinese second-rate products right they're fan they're, i mean it's may and uh and taught it are stuck together at the end of the day they're going to the brothel together they're you know ahmad is on the journey and right. yeah so it's i think it's I'm, I'm guessing this is going back to a diversity that you grew up with and, and the next film that i'm writing is also about this mm. you take a guy or you take a person yeah. and you clothe him. You yes. put him in clothes that define him who he is. And then halfway through the film, you just throw his life in shambles and chaos. This is how. This is the conflict of, uh, you know, wh when you take somebody and you want to add conflict to him, you're likely to get attached. If you take a guy who's flat and does not have a big problem or his problems are one-dimensional, yeah. it's less of an interesting movie. The more you make your character complex, the more it's interesting to watch those characters. And goddamn, do we not come from a very complex, complicated area? We do. Absolutely. And you do a few things that relate to the West deliberately. The last scene in the attack, just before he's at the bus stop, and he's hearing her words again told through him, he's seeing the ground zero graffiti and in Janine. And right. yeah, and I mean, the, you can't, I mean, that's it. Right. One country's terrorist attack and then September 11 is related to. And uh, I think, as you said at the beginning, storytelling is the most important part. I think of, so. Yeah. Your stories, I think, heal wounds. I don't, I don't know if you would consider yourself a, uh, <laughs> a healer. Of course not. Yeah. And I don't think Why you consider yourself... Why would I want to consider myself a healer? Sure. Neither I hate this yeah. healer. <laughs> yeah, you have not... to hurt people <laughs> and you have to make them smile at the same time. No, I'm not a healer. You're not a healer and you're not a historian. You're I'm a, not a historian. Right. I'm, not a, I'm not a social activist. I'm not a politician. I'm just like to tell stories. But I think, I think because of the lack of text to turn to, especially in the last few decades. I think it's movies like yours that are creating a communal sense of what happened. Now, this could be an unintended byproduct, but I think of West Beirut as my own childhood. And I grew up in West Beirut. I know it's not my childhood. These are different people. These are different schools, different, different events. 
And the 1970s are very different than the 1990s. But I still relate to it, and I think that's the power of filmmaking. The insult, I mean, I know Fasuh. I drive by Fasuh. I know the car mechanic store at the end of the street. Yeah. I mean, the Kerem Zaytun shots, these, uh, these wonderful, I guess they're drone images of Beirut being elevated. That's part of my life. Right. And now I think of the insult when I think of Fasuh and Kerem Zaytun. I think of Tony Hanna. So whether it's deliberate or not, because there's no text to give justice to the victims of Demur, you're serving an unintended rule, I think. And I think if you're trying to punch back at the groups that insulted you with the attack, I think you're doing it the right way. Um, maybe. I'm not done with them yet. <laughs> well, no, I'm serious. The first punch is, is getting you an Oscar-nominated film. So at least it's being respected for its craft, for its work. That's, I think, a huge, a huge accomplishment. That is. Yeah. It was certainly a very, very beautiful thing. And, and uh, you know, it, it was not for sure that we were going we're gonna to have the Lebanese government accept it. But we won that battle. It's a great battle. I'm so glad we won that battle because it was worthy, worthy every fight. Because I was not going to, you know, I don't mind losing fairly. If you get into a context and you lose, you lose. But you have to have the chance to participate. I wanted to participate in that, in that path, yeah. which is presenting my film. Now, if uh, the Lebanese government says, no, there's a better film that we're going to nominate, fair. If we presented it to the Oscar and they said, you're not going to make it, it's fair. But I want a fair share to participate. And then let the people judge. And I think the fact that we got nominated was fair. The fact that another film won it, it's fair. I want it to be fair. This is such a central thing in my life. Fairness, really. I can't tell you how much. If you put all these movies side by side, and I will include Lila Disa in this, I think uh, you're, you're giving fairness to a part of the world that needs it. They're, I think it's exactly. desperate for Leb- it. Lebanon, in my childhood, I don't remember many fair things. Yeah, I have to agree. I think if I am always holding on to this principle more than any... I don't have a lot of morals in life. I, I break a lot of morals. I really... I consider myself an amoral guy. Just the idea and the concept of fairness is something that I really hold on because I've seen so much unfairness in my life when I was young. Yeah. Whether you go by your bread and then the militia enters and then he double-line you or, or you've... You failed to get a visa because you want to travel. All these unfairness very early on, I was very sensitive to them. I think it's what uh, works me up the most, the lack of fairness. Everybody has a right to express their opinion. That's how the insult was also born. It was born as a rebuttal to the attack, but it was born actually because, you know, you, you hear what the Christian had to say. And I've never heard it before. After I left the States, came back 18 years later. You re-examine history. You believe, you know, we always grew up to believe that the only people who suffer are the Muslims and the Christian were living the high life. And then when you get to know them, they say, no, man, we suffered as much as you do. We stood in line to get bread as much as you did. Yeah. The bomb were falling on us because we used to believe that bombs never fell on East Beirut. Right. right. We really believed yeah. it. Yeah. Like, you know, they used to say, oh, we take the detonators out. <laughs> Yeah, and there's... then you say, no, they lived the war like us. And then it changed your perspective a little bit. As someone who... Ha- I, 
I mean, there's a deep wound that will never heal in my life. Um, I don't know how to deliver justice on something that happened to me. Um, and I turn to poetic justice. You're referring to fairness. I think uh, this type of rebuttal is the kind of eloquence that's needed when you're fighting back. And storytelling, I think, has that power. Not many things do. It's hard to get that kind of justice done right, especially when you don't, there's no such thing as a fair trial. You'll never see your opponents uh, punished for what happened to you. Right. Uh, I, I will never see those people behind bars or facing any no. sentence. It will never happen. That's very difficult to digest. Of course it is. It's actually, I don't it's think it's... It's the worst thing. I don't think it, it's not... It's, you cannot digest that. But storytelling, the power of storytelling can do magic. And I'll quote you there. It is magical. So thank you for the movies you're making. And I hope the next movie uh, pushes forward on that front. Because uh, whether you're returning to Lebanon or not anytime soon, you are a very important of post-war Lebanese memory and filmmaking. Thank you. Thank you, Ziad. filmmaker residing in Paris and moving to New York still considers Beirut essential and part of his DNA and the idea that he left us with regards to fairness I think that issue can be taken of course beyond simple storytelling and whether it's film or writing or anything pursuing fairness pursuing justice I think is something that is critical and Ziad Zouedi does it well he does it artistically, he does it through the human uh, spirit, and he takes us on journeys that lend themselves really well to, to the movie screen. As Yed says directly that he's not a historian or a social activist or anything like that, but I do think social activists, historians, can deliver stories of equal importance, and I don't think it's, of course, just an immediate emotional response that is necessary to tell a good story. But I do believe that when you bring the two together, a deep desire and a well-rounded knowledge of the subject, a, a good story can be delivered on, on any front, in any career. And that includes issues that are not necessarily uh, human per se, uh, but they do, in a way, bring us back to previous chapters of our history that I think a lot of us are nostalgic towards. And the older generation saw them with their own eyes, the younger generations hear about them, and if they see them today, it's really in their, in their decrepit state. And I'm going to take us away from the movie screen and away from Paris to Riek, to the trains of Lebanon. And this is not a romantic issue. In itself. I mean, it's hard to link rails and romance, but in Lebanon, uh, the rail network and the old trains bring about certain emotions that are not necessarily about the trains themselves. They take us back to uh, a period of our history where Lebanon was still being built. It was new, modern Lebanon at least. 
was just born. Our next guest, Elias Malouf, really brings the real network back to life. He set up an NGO dedicated solely to bringing rail back to Lebanon. It's called Train Train. And he ran the NGO for 15 years. So he's, uh, he's very passionate and very persuasive when it comes to telling the stories of the trains. And he thinks it's an, a fairness and a just issue as well, that we deserve better. This is, of course, a, a different layer of, of justice, if you will, a different type of fairness. But Elias uh, Malouf dedicated almost half of his life to this issue, and he firmly believes that Lebanon cannot be properly rebuilt without bringing rail back to the country. And it's a, it's a message that I think is increasingly shared with a broader audience, and it's an issue that does take precedence because the transportation situation in Lebanon is, uh, is so bad it is so difficult to move around Lebanon today, uh, especially between cities, without being stuck in traffic for hours on end. We get into all this. A story about trains and transport, and one man's desire to make sure we see trains moving again in Lebanon. Our next episode will be with Elias Malouf, founder of Train Train, and I hope you enjoyed our first episode with filmmaker Ziad Dwaydi. I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan.